And those of you who've heard me present at these meetings before will know that I'm normally presenting a hypothesis usually to do with the political economy of um, economic policy reform, for example, in the 1950s. So the period of the 50s is what's dominated my thinking insofar as I do work on history until recently. And now this sort of project has come to dominate my life. So let me explain why I got into this. In 1972, the IDA started to keep track of employment in all manufacturing firms in Ireland. And they do that up to the present day. It's very hard to get access to their data, but at least, at least it exists. There's nothing um, equivalent from the period 1922 up to 1972. And the IDA database has been used in scores and scores of academic studies. It's really valuable for economists and uh, business researchers. So I set myself the task a number of years ago to try and build up an inventory of leading manufacturing firms between 22 and 72. So I, look, I have the 1960 largely mapped out now. The 1972 IDA database is missing some firms, so I've largely filled that in. Now I've turned my attention to the 1920s. So this is a huge project. I'm trying to track all the leading firms. So I'm only going to be talking about a small number of them here today. But initially then, it just started as really a numerical analysis. So I was interested in how many people were employed in these firms and what year the firms were established and when they were sold on or collapsed. But needless to say, you know, it's taken on a life of its own, and I think there's an awful lot of um, interesting historical nuggets that emerge from this kind of study. So, if um, I, all my slides really are photographs here, so um, you you'll be familiar with really all of the firms that I'm that I'm putting up on slides here. So, Oblums was the leading flour miller in the 1920s. It had you know, at various times about six or seven or eight flour mills around the country, most of, most of the time in the Midlands. But if you look at the Oglums logo, it means something to every one of us. And this is going to sound like a bit of business school jargon, but as I've gotten into this project, I just realised how actually how meaningful brands are to us all. I was talking with a pal of mine just before coming on the podium here about like the brands that we remember from our childhood. And brands... The way I was thinking about it last night, how to express this. So you know the saying that we're all, we, all, we all continuously have a film rolling where we're the star in it, and that's how we live our lives. And I was thinking, you know, there's an awful lot of product placement in those films. So that's the, the significance of these kind of brands. So Oglands was a Church of Ireland family. The other thing I do, and I won't talk about it so much here, is try and map the religion of the family. So needless to say in the 1920s, a lot of firms, probably most of them were Protestant owned. Quakers were really involved in industry and you know they, they their ownership of firms is uh, way out of this, way out of proportion to their share of the population. But then when I come to the nineteen thirties, which is kind of the, the next decade on my agenda, the late nineteen thirties, we're gonna see a huge proportion, huge proportion of increase in Catholic owned firms. But the other thing that you notice in the nineteen thirties, which I'm partly Way mapping out now is so textiles, clothing, and footwear was, was a big sector that expanded under kind of fall protectionism. And a huge proportion of the clothing industry was actually populated then by Jewish immigrants from, from England, you know. So then um, Jewish entrepreneurs came over. So that's something it may be known to historians, it was a surprise to me. 
Um, so another brand that I discovered, and I could not believe I'd forgotten of the existence of this brand since it was so important <laughs> to me in my childhood, was this one. So that's Ernie's Two and Two Chocolate Bar. So Ernie's is named after a parish in County Tyrone where the firm started up. Their factory burnt down in 1924. Common and Whale had just introduced tariffs on chocolate. So Ernie's moved down here and set up their factory here. Chocolate-making firms all over these islands are dominated by the Quakers. So both Cadbury and Roundtree are, are Quakers. So I was interested to see that there is actually a Quaker connection. The, the Gallagher's who, who set up Ernie's were Catholics, but Harry Gallagher's mother was of Quaker extraction. So I think there's a connection there. So you see I'm focusing solely on manufacturing. So that means that's simply because I have to draw the line somewhere. It's a big enough project as it is. So that means things like a Shannon scheme really play no part in my, in my talk here today. Because all of that employment was really in construction. The machinery was built abroad by Siemens and imported. So I don't say anything about Shannon. Let me talk a little bit about the methodology. The Census of Industrial Production is an official, uh, an official publication. Um, today it's run by the CSO. These are the first census of industrial production, 1926 and 1929. They don't mention any firms by name. By name. State agencies generally don't mention firms by name. So there's de details of sectors in here. So we know the distribution of employment across manufacturing sectors. So in, the 19, in 1929, 50, basically around 50% of manufacturing employment was in food, drink, and tobacco. And that's mostly food. Around 20% in textiles, clothing, and footwear. About 10% in metals and engineering. And the remainder in a diverse other array. One thing the sense of industrial production does, though, besides, so that's very valuable to know, you know the, the, the proportion of employment in different sectors. Another thing it does, though, is it tells you the proportion in each sector of very large establishments or factories. Now, factories or establishments are different from firms. So for some firms I'll be talking about <coughs> operated one big factory. So you think of Guinness. You know, Guinness operated at that time operated one big factory. So the firm and the factory are the same thing. For other firms like Oldham's, their employment is distributed across seven or eight mills across the country. So it's difficult to identify where Oddlands shows up in the sense of industrial production. So that's something I have to be very careful of. And the kind of methodology I use, the Irish Manufacturing <coughs> Yearbook from 1919 gives a list of most, most manufacturing firms in existence at that time. So fortunately, I teach a class in economic policy and business history for about the last three years or so, and I set my students' assignments to say, okay, trace the history of this firm, you know, see if you can find employment data. It basically entails trolling through newspapers, but most of the newspaper archives are online now. So a lot of the evidence you get on employment comes from the newspaper archives, usually when there's a strike or something like that, and there's lots of strikes at that time. Then the newspaper will report how many people are, you know, are, or when a factory closes down. So um, my own area of interest, expertise, I suppose you might say, as an economist is in foreign direct investment. So foreign direct investment is, is so the activities of multinational corporations. So a multinational is a company that's headquartered in one country and has a subsidiary in another country. A lot of the firms that I talk about here were set up by Scotsmen 
in Ireland. They, uh, if they didn't have a parent company abroad, that doesn't count as a foreign firm, that counts as an Irish firm. So, you know, today we're familiar with Apple and Google and Intel and Pfizer and all these. These are all <coughs> multinationals. First thing I want to talk about here then is the, what, what, were, what was the, you know, to what extent were multinationals operating in the Irish economy in the 1920s? So we, the Irish economy in, in the 1920s, so at, at independence in 1922, we've been integrated with the British economy since actually 1820. Some trade barriers remained after the Act of Union of 1800. By 1820, all the trade barriers were down. So Ireland and Britain were really integrated economies. You might have expected a lot then of British firms operating in Ireland. In fact, there are very few. In fact, I can name all the ones that were here in the 1920s, which is great. The fact that there's so few means I can keep track of them. The fact that they're sufficiently populous means I'll get an academic paper out of it. You know, if there's only one or two, I wouldn't. Now, the most surprising thing, I think, in 1922, the biggest foreign manufacturer in Ireland was not British. Now, if this is a bunch of students, I'd say anybody guess who it was, but we're short of time since I've got so many, so many slides to show. It was actually Ford, Ford Motor Company. So Ford had started tractor production in 1919 in Cork and was a huge employer, but Ford's prospects you know, varied hugely over the 1920s and 1930s. So sometimes its employment would drop down to maybe 500 or 400, sometimes it employed up to 4,000 people, <coughs> which made it the biggest factory in the state at that time. Ford, as you might know, the Ford family man mansion in Dearborn, Michigan is, is called Fair Lane because the Ford ancestor was born in Fair Lane. Union, usually when he's talking here, makes an allusion to his family, so I have a family connection with Ford, very slight. My dad was born in 1919, grew up on Fair Lane in Mallow. And he remembers from early, uh, a memory from early childhood is this incredible excitement that pervaded the household, such that it was almost delirium. And years later, he asked his parents what that had been about, and they said Henry Ford was on the street outside. So he was obviously making a pilgrimage around the various fair ladies in, in County Cork at that time. So Ford was, Ford was a huge employer. Amazingly again, sorry, I'm going to say amazingly a lot because all of these things are amazing to me, um, an Irish multinational employed more in Britain in 1922 than any British firm employed in the Free State, and that was Jacobs. So Jacobs had set up a factory at Aintree near Liverpool in 1914, and it employed thousands. It employed as many in Liverpool in the 1920s and 30s as it employed in its Irish factory. So its Irish factory was also huge, employed generally around 2,000 people. So one thing we know from the census of industrial production is that there were nine <coughs> factories or nine establishments that were deemed to be very large. Very large at the time, meant employing more than 500 people. So I can identify all of those, and I'll kind of summarise at the end and tell you there's a sort of beautiful symmetry to those nine factories. So we've seen two of them already, so Ford and Jake, Jacobs. So, you know, Jacobs was a, was, a, was a Quaker firm, of course, and the Quakers, in terms of food production, were regarded as very, very reliable because a big problem with food uh, at that time was food adulteration. The <coughs> British Medical Journal surveyed food on sale um, in, 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 in London and other parts of Britain from the 1850s onwards and found that most foodstuffs were adulterated. 
So that meant that a firm could develop a reputation for quality. That reputation was very valuable to it. So Jacobs had established that reputation, as had some of the other leading firms. At the, in fact, all the leading firms. You know, that's what made them leading firms at the time. Here's another Irish multinational of the era, Gooling Fertilisers. You can see that this is not obviously not an Irish farmer cutting down a, a 10, 12 foot tall piece of maize. So we've had a factory in Florida. So the other thing I've identified in the 1920s and slightly into the 1930s, so there were six Irish indigenous multinational companies at that time. I'd say besides yourself, yourselves and my students and myself, Nobody else in the world knows that as yet. So, independence, 1922, excise duties are slapped onto trade across the Irish Sea in cigarettes. Now, I've been talking about this to various media outlets and so on in recent times. But this, is called, this is what we call essentially tariff jumping foreign direct investment. Trade barriers go up. What does a company do to protect its markets? It jumps over those trade barriers and establishes where to, in places where it had formerly been exporting. So you got tariff jumping FBI immediately. So Players and Wills, the two big cigarette companies, moved into Ireland, set up factories in 1923. So this is Players' most popular brand, but the brands that I recall, because all my uncles smoked them and they all died young, were the famous um, coffin nails. Right? So these are the wood bombs that even look so wrong. <laughs> so, but Players and Wills together employed 1,500 people in the late 1920s. So this was another one of the big significant nine factories. Now, we had an Irish cigarette company, Carol's, and Carol's most famous brand. Oh, sorry, that's the factory. Carol's most famous brand, Sweet Afton, named after the poem by Robbie Burns. The Burns connection is because Burns' sister lived in Dundalk and is buried in a graveyard just outside Carroll's factory. So Carroll's hit on the strategy of using that to target the Scottish market. It's, it's set it up in this brand emerged in 1919. I'm sure you all remember it. it These cigarette boxes are works of art. I think it's a bit politically incorrect to even be showing them, but they're, they're beautiful. So. So Carroll's tariff jumped into Britain in 1923 as well. It set up a factory in Liverpool in 1923. So you had, it's like Christy Moore's song, they, they, come, they come here and we go there. Um, so you, you had that occurring. But we always think, I think, of Cumming Whale as essentially been quite a, a laissez-faire sort, sort of party. Um, I'm of a different opinion. I, they, were, they were actually moderately protectionist. Now, again, historians will know that, but carefully protectionist. And in 1924, they introduced a series of tariffs on products that they knew would be relatively easy <coughs> to produce in Ireland. And these were things like uh, chocolate. Um, chocolate was a big one. Boots and shoes, um, candles, soap, other things like that. But immediately then, this triggered further tariff jumping into Ireland by British firms. So in 1922, we had very few British manufacturing firms in Ireland. By 1929, we had quite a number, and two of them were of the nine biggest factory owners. So Roundtree, this is beautiful, isn't it? Uh, 
1926, you got a lot of British um, chocolate manufacturers moving into Ireland. So Roundtree's moved in, Macintosh, which was a separate company, they later merged, moved in in 1926, Clarnico Murray moved in in 1926. By 1960, Roundtree's would be one of, the, one of the biggest factories in the country. In the 1920s, it wasn't so significant. But I put up that poster there because it's actually one of my favourite possessions. I bought it on the internet. <laughs> um, Williams and Woods, a long-established Irish firm, was taken over by a, a chocolate, again, produced chocolates and jams and so on, taken over by the British firm Cross and Blackwell in 1927. And again, Cross and Blackwell became one of the biggest firms in Ireland in the late 1920s. So that building still exists. Some of you might know just north of Parnell Street. That's what it looked like before the Corpo wrecked Parnell Street. That's what, um, that's what uh, their main factory looked like. Mm. Halliday's. So Halliday's was in Dundalk. John Halliday's on a British shoe manufacturer. It came in before Finnefall. It came in in 1929 again in response to common and whale tariffs. Later on, as you move through the decades, this became a front for Clark's Shoes. Clark's Shoes never formally established in Ireland because it was hostile to the Control and Manufacturers Act that Lamas introduced in 1932. So Halliday's operated as a front for Clark's Shoes. It wasn't a significant employer in the 20s, but later on, again by 1960s, Clark's Shoes would be one of the biggest manufacturers in the state. And the final slide I have on this section where I'm talking about foreign direct investment, Castle Forbes. This is what remains. These are called ghost signs. You might know this is all that remains of the Lever Brothers soap factory on Sheriff Street. So Lever Brothers came in in the late 1920s. Again, tariff jumping, and they set up a factory there that employed three or 400 people. So... Okay, so I'm going to leave foreign direct investment behind now and just talk about this firm. So Cleves, many of you might remember since Cleves Coffee were, coffees were in Seoul until the 1980s. It's the, it was a remnant of a hugely significant firm that went bankrupt in the 1920s called the Condensed Milk Company of Ireland. So some of you who <coughs> know Limerick will recognise where this is. Um, so Cleves, so it owned creameries all over the country to supply its uh, the raw materials for its condensed milk. So it produced condensed milk, uh, choc uh, chocolate, and toffee, butter, whole range of products. It across all its creameries in Munster and the main creamery here, it employed three thousand people in the early nineteen twenties. So that was a huge employer. I mean, the biggest employer today in manufacturing is about. Apple is <coughs> six or seven thousand or so. So three thousand at that time was, you know, was a huge firm and really significant. Its history, which I'm going to tell you about now in a few minutes, is I can I see as a microcosm <coughs> the whole history of the troubled period of you know around 1919 to 19 early, early, early 1920s. So on. the Cleves were Canadians. Their father was English. Their mother was of um, was from Cork of Huguenot background. They came, various brothers returned from Canada, from Quebec, to help out in the mother's uh, family business in Limerick, and they ended up establishing the condensed milk company. And it grew to be absolutely vast um, company. So that's what kind of what it looks like today. 
They had a can-making room, so they made their own tins for condensed milk. They did really well during the First World War, so Cleves condensed milk went to all the front lines of you know, where the British Army and Commonwealth troops and so on were fighting. As, of course, did Carol's. Carol's the cigarettes employed a terrific, smart strategy. It delivered tons of free tobacco to the front lines when the First World War broke out. And, of course, soldiers smoked constantly, you know, so they all got hooked on Carl's. So that's how it penetrated the British market. So Cleves did really well during the First World War. Unfortunately, it built up vast stocks of condensed milk. The war ended. Prices, you know, all prices, the price of the dairy products in particular, collapsed, and Cleves was left with a huge stock of products that it couldn't sell. So it went bankrupt in the early 1920s. But its history is a lot more intricate than that, because as you'll know, during the War of Independence, the British Army targeted creameries all over the country and as acts of reprisals against the <coughs> civilian population. They didn't care that Cleves was a Protestant Unionist factory. They burnt them down anyway. And then during the War of Independence, the population regarded Cleves as foreigners, and you know, Thomas Cleves Unionist Mayor of Limerick, at the time, so they were targeted in the War of Independence by both sides. They got stung really badly during the outbreak of the, the Soviets, you know, the Soviet period. So the I've, I've tried to find a picture of the slogan on the red flag that was hung over Cleves factory during the Soviet outbreak in Limerick. Um, I couldn't find it, but there's one close enough. The, the, the flag said, and it has such a modern ring to it, it said, um, we make butter, not profits. So anyway, the closest thing I've been able to find is this one, which is a bakery, workers' Soviet mills. We make bread, not profits. So Cleves got hammered by all sides, but the other thing that hammered Cleves really is the long war of attrition that had taken place between the emerging dairy cooperative movement and the private creameries. So back when the co-ops started, or started to get going around the 1880s or so, there was a lot of private creameries around the around the country, and the co-ops were very aggressive in building creamery plants close to these private cooperatives to try and drive them out of business. Most of the British firms that owned the private co-ops left the country. So essentially at, at Independence, Cleves, which was an Irish firm, um, was, was the last big private co-op standing. And the war of attrition continued. Cleves went bankrupt, and ultimately it was sold to a British wholesaling firm called Lovell and Christmas. And clearly, I mean, was, we can't find any evidence of this, but you can't imagine that even the Cosgrave government you know, would not have regarded that as a slight, that the biggest creamy firm in the country was back in British hands. And so they bought it out, they bought it out and uh, turned it into the Dairy Disposal Company, which ended that long war of attrition between the private creamers. So my friend Michal is a student of unions who's written a book on the dairy disposal company called it something like the, the nationalization of the dairy industry. So he regarded the, the emergence of the, the dairy disposal company as really the private, private creamery companies been nationalized. So Cleves has a, has a fantastically interesting history, I think. So I'm going to talk now a little bit about some of the food and drink firms, other than the ones that I've, that I've mentioned already. 
So I mentioned the problems with food adulteration that had been taking place for decades in Britain, even as late as 1910, and tests on food for sale in Britain found that most foods were adulterated. So this really is the emergence of brand names. Brand names started to emerge around that time as significant indicators of quality. You know, if, you, if you trusted a particular brand, you bought it again and again because you knew it wasn't going to be diluted or adulterated. So the leading Irish food firms were all ones that were, had renowned reputations for good, good quality. So Guinness's clearly did. It actually sold at a premium over other beers in the British market. By 1920, it was reputed to be the biggest, uh, biggest brewery in the world. And fortunately, it's easy to get data on that because I have an archivist who sent me this. So in 1929, employed 3,200 workers. What I love about what she sent me here is the range of employees, laborers, tradesmen, apprentices, lads, boys, and women. So um, very clearly delineated uh, groups. Um, these were the range of Irish breweries still in existence in the 1920s. And one I'm going to mention in particular, Watkins, Jemison and Pym, because the old brewery building is still standing. It's on New, New Square, just off Cork Street in the Liberties. And a local historian there, who's a friend of mine, took this photograph about a year ago, 10RD Street. So you can see the brass plaque there, Watkins, Jemison and Pym. <coughs> But the tragedy is we think somebody spotted and taken the photograph because a month later it was stolen. And it's now, now no doubt in a pub in Shanghai or somewhere else. <laughs> so uh, Minch Norton, obviously associated with brewing, where, where it was malting. So Minch Norton was founded in the 1920s and became the biggest uh, malting uh, company. That's a photograph from um, Enniscorthy, so that sign is still there. And just one other thing on the drinks sector. Thwaites, which is clearly a Protestant firm, established in 1799, was, was known as the inventors of soda water. You know? So if you went into your whiskies and your beers, soda water was, a, was an alternative. And then flavoured soda water it became you know, what the Coca-Colas of today and so on. So Thwaites merged with a couple of other firms in the 1920s and became mineral water distributors which is shortened to my wadi. So, so uh, I'm not going to say much about Jacobs because I've already talked about them, but th this photograph is fascinating. <coughs> if you look at the export markets that they're serving, I've never been able to figure out where that is, but Karachi in Pakistan, Salisbury, which is now Harare, Colombo in Sri Lanka. So they had huge export markets. Um, but like I say, they had set up their factory in Liverpool in 1912, 1914, partly out of fears as to what home rule might entail. So the home rule bill was going towards signature. And even though home rule actually didn't give the Irish government, if it had ever, ever come into being, didn't give them <coughs> fiscal powers, there was clearly uncertainty as to what it might mean. The sector that has grown to fascinate me most for some reason I can't explain at all is the, is the bacon sector so bacon and hams these were, these were all, the big firms were all located in Limerick so Limerick was the centre of the bacon trade it was an incredibly innovative sector, unlike butter uh, whiskey by the way had been wiped out Irish whiskey had been wiped out by Scotch whiskey from the 1890s and in the 1920s it looked like the industry might disappear completely 
Irish butter was of lousy quality, particularly after the, the demise of Cleves. Um, there was no brand name that was recognised for Irish butter. Even as late as the 1950s, there was at least 60 brands of Irish butter competing in the Irish market until Kerrygold was established in the early 1960s. So when Kerrygold was established in, the early, in 1962, I think it was, it followed what the Danes had done in 1900. So the Danes were that far ahead of us. They had established a single national brand, ensured rigid quality control, and Danish butter sold at a huge premium on British markets over Irish butter. The bacon sector is completely different. The bacon sector was reputed, you know, it's renowned, very strict quality control, and it sold at a premium in Britain against Danish bacon and bacon from everywhere else. So the Irish bacon sector was really innovative. And I'll tell you something that hopefully will amuse you now in a minute about the, about the bacon sector. But there were four big firms in Limerick. Well, Denny's, which Jeremy, of course, knows is a Waterford firm, but had established in Limerick as well. There was Matterson's, um, Shaw's, and O'Mara's. So three of the big four were Protestant. Um, so O'Mara's is the only one that was Catholic, and O'Mara's, is, the name is probably well known to most Irish historians, because O'Mara was a a parliamentary party uh, MP, and he was the first guy to resign from the House of Commons when he joined Sinn Féin in, I think, 1906 or something. Um, so, so O'Mara has disappeared without trace, as has Matterson's. The show and Denny brand is still there. The Denny's were hugely significant in the British bacon trade. That's Edward Denny. But why amongst the innovations uh, that the Irish bacon sector produced was they stumbled on what later become, became known as Limerick mild cured ham. The whole trick in bacon at the time was how to cure ham to preserve its taste and flexibility and to ensure they could ship it overseas without going bad. So it started off in incredibly heavy salted and then they stumbled on this trick that's still known today as Limerick mild cured ham and it was the rage of the world. The world at the time was Britain, of course. You know, so it completely took off in Britain. And that innovation allowed the two significant, the two big Limerick bacon, well, Limerick and Waterford bacon companies to go multinational. So these are two more Irish multinationals at the time. This ad shows Denny and Sons, Waterford, Limerick and Chicago. They set up a huge meat packing plant in Chicago and bacon curing and so on, shipping it to the UK because the, the mild cure was so popular. Even more exotic in a way is what happened um, the O'Mara company. So O'Mara from Limerick, this is what Donnelly's Bacon Company just off Cork Street looked like at the time. Um, and now there's a building on Cork Street called the Donnelly Centre in honour of the fact that Donnelly's Bacon Factory isn't there. That was owned... Sorry? No, I didn't mean, I, 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 that was the Donnelly, I know. Yeah, yeah, Donnelly's, Donnelly's Sausages. Um, so, so the Donnelly's company was owned by the O'Mara family as well. That was part of their empire. But their empire was way more exotic than that. This is um, a Limerick, a Munster newspaper from 1891 that refers to the Russian bacon company <coughs> which was an O'Mara subsidiary, 400 miles out of Moscow, a huge railway junction. They went over there, they brought workers from Limerick over there to train the local workers in how to produce Limerick mild cured bacon, and they shipped it over to London. 
but their, their reach extended way beyond that. And there's a, a lovely story that, that O'Mara's granddaughter, Patricia Lavelle, has written a book about the family, tells that they also set up a factory on the border between Romania and Serbia at the time. And other members of the family set up bacon factories in Canada and Mexico and South Africa. So they traveled all over the world. But the, the one in Serbia, Romania, remained within family hands. And they had such a good reputation that after the Second World War, Marshal Tito in Yugoslavia invited James O'Mara to come over and make a visit. But O'Mara was elderly and ailing at the time, and he couldn't do it, and he died in 1948. But it's a fantastically exotic uh, touch. So this is another one of my Irish multinationals of the era. So this is Boland's Mills, of course, as you're all familiar with. Um, the, what you're probably less familiar with is the site of Boland's original bakery, which is just there. That's Goodwin's musical instrument store, so that's where it was on Cable Street. Boland's was another, it, you, you might not talk about it as a factory, but it's part of manufacturing. So it's another one um, of the nine big manufacturing establishments at the time. Boland's, which all of these firms, by the way, you know, all of them date from you know the 1820s, 1830s, and so on. So Boland's, I think, employed around 500. So it was barely over the limit to get met, to get implicitly mentioned in the sense of industrial production. Johnson, Mooney, and O'Brien was almost as big, but its workers were spread across 11 establishments or so. So <coughs> it, it didn't count as a single establishment the way Boland's um, would have done in sense of industrial production. So Boland's, uh, Boland's and um, Johnson, Mooney and O'Brien, they're big bakers. Then I've mentioned Odlums in terms of flour milling. The, so the Odlums name is quite an exotic name. Um, a lot of people think it's Quaker, it's not, it's actually Church of Ireland. But the other, uh, the other exotic names that you get in the milling business, so Bannatine and Limerick, um, Shackleton, uh, the family of famous... Uh, uh, Antarctic Explorer, and the one that I love is um, Plexen. So this happens to be, for about the last 30 years or so, my favourite Yeats poem, and it's about the Plexen family, and that's an old Plexen mill. So you're all familiar with the fact that, you know, Yeats's maternal people were Plexens. They were involved in the shipping trade in Sligo and in milling. Okay, so let me go on and say something about um, textiles. Okay, so that's food, food, drink, and tobacco to one side. Um, say something about textiles. So, the big textile firm of the 1920s was another Quaker family, the Good Bodies. So the Good Bodies have this old factory in Clara, um, in a place called Clashawan, just outside Clara, when I heard about it a few years ago, I made a pilgrimage down there. It's great, kind of derelict, but the building is so nice. So this is so much like an austere photograph, and it contrasts so much with the following advertisement for Good Bodies, which is a Paul Henry advertisement, which I think is rather beautiful. And that's what their factory looked like. So um, the Good Bodies jute factory in Clara employed around 700 people in 1929. They had a lot of other businesses as well. They were involved in tobacco. Carol's book bought them out in the late 20s, bought out their tobacco business. And they were involved in milling. 
So on that little stretch of the River Brosna, right around Clare, there's three old mills as well as this huge, um, huge factory. Um, so and then, of course, there's a range of other textile companies. In in industrial analysis, like the sense of industrial production, textiles is divided into essentially non-woolens, which is this one, and woolens. The big woolen fact, and, and again, it's, it's kind of funny, most of the textiles other than wool were owned by non-Catholics, whether Quaker or Church of Ireland, whereas the woolen industry was almost completely owned by Catholics. So this is something I'm going to have to explore in the future. I'm actually thinking, you know, this is, this is, this is far-sighted now. With all these data I'm accumulating, when I get it, get it together in the next couple of years, there'll be so many dozens of PhDs to be got out of it long after I'm dead. So really, this is it. This is uh, this is not all about not all about me me me, um, because as I say, the IDA database has proved incredibly useful. So this one should prove equivalently useful. But the amount of historical research, like you you may know or historians may know, why the woolen industry is dominated by Catholics and the other textiles not. But the big Catholic firm uh, in wool was um, Blarney Blarney Woolen Mills, and this is a snippet. This is the sort of place that you find these these kind of data. This is a snippet from a publication of 1919 called Cork Industry and Agriculture or something like that. You see there Martin Mahoney Blarney Mills uh, employed, employed 600 at the time. So the other various firms weren't as big as that one. Um, yeah, so that's still on textiles. And then to say something about clothing, the absolute huge clothing company. So, so the textile firms tend to be quite big, you know, employing on average maybe 300 workers or so. So um, other ones that you'd be familiar with, so you know, Providence Woolen Mills in Foxford, that employed 300 in the 1920s. Convoy Woolen in, in Donegal employed 400. Morrow Brothers in Cork employed 300. Athlone Woolen Mills, 400. So these were all relatively big firms. The clothing firms were much smaller. But basically, you know, any, any tailor could, you know, could knock out a few clothes or that. So the economies of scale are much more significant in the textile sector. So clothing firms tended to be small, other than Dwyer's of Cork. But it had a range of companies. You know, so it had a big booth company, but you know, um, Lee Hosiery, Dwyer, Lee Shirts, and so on. In the 1920s, this was a huge firm, not all in one factory, so the factories all over Cork, but it employed 1,200 people in 1929, so a really, really substantial firm. Then there was a whole, a whole range of other firms that I'm going to have to skip over. There's one sector, and I remember asking you years and years ago, what does hosiery actually mean? It must be when I got started on this. You were able to tell me. I hope you remember what it means now. No, you knew at the time. Anyway, it means socks and stockings, right? So, no, I don't know. I don't know why I asked you. You might love to say that. Um, so, the hosiery sector was traditionally located in Balbriggan, and why it was there was there was major industrial unrest around the time of the Act of Union. And the hosiery producers said, "Tell me this, we're going to get out of Dublin," and they uh, they moved to uh, they moved to Balbriggan because the leading firm in Balbriggan, which was <coughs> which was Smith and Company, 
was already there. It was there from 1790. And there is that, that building, those buildings still exist. The walkway is gone now. But this building in particular, it, this building is particularly beautiful, but this building is terrific because it has um, you know, indications on it of all the gold medals that they won around the world for the hosiery that they produced at the time. Queen Victoria only got her socks and stockings, if that's what hosiery actually is, from this company, you know, and after um, decades and decades when the guy who had produced her stockings was retiring, she sent him a, a medal and a letter and, you know, a, a gift or something like that. So, very significant um, company uh, and factory. So, the factory is still there. It's not in production, of course, but there's a huge um, chimney stack behind it that's just directly going to leave the railway station at Balbriggan. And this was another hosiery company in Balbriggan. You can't see the name there, it's on the seafront, it's long gone. And I've always, I've, is Michael Kennedy here today? No, because Michael loves this sort of detective work. This was burnt down by the Black and Tans in, in the sack of Balbriggan. Um, or the auxiliaries, what's it? I don't know. Black, Black and Tans, yeah. Burnt down, never resurrected. But the amazing thing was, this was a, one of the few English-owned companies at the time. So I've always thought, and, and all you read about in the papers for years afterwards is an insurance claim that they're trying to take out against, against the Irish state. So I thought they probably tipped the black and tans if you bobbed to burn the factory down. Anyway, what, um, there is, there's another smokestack. Uh, um, it doesn't, not particularly apparent there. That's an old smoke, red smokestack that's still there, and the factory itself is gone. Okay. Um, um, I'm going to go on for about another ten minutes. Is that okay? That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <coughs> So, the, the last of my nine major uh, establishments employing over 500 people is <coughs> the following one. Independent newspapers. In the media these days, um, it employed around 700 in the late 1920s when it took over the Freeman's Journal. Freeman's Journal had to, you know, obviously... Uh, established 1763, it folded in 1924. Its factory had been, you know, um, destroyed by the Republicans in the Civil War. So the Irish Independent took it over, recruited all the workers, and so on. And for years and years, you see that it said on the masthead of the Irish Independent, um, incorporating Freeman's Journal. So I remember that as a as a kid, as I'm sure lots of you do. And then, okay, so then finally to say something about the um, metals and engineering sector. So, <laughs> Pierce was a bicycle. So, Pierce was, was, a, was, was a big, so um, Ford counts as metals and engineering in terms of the division and the, um, the way the sense of industrial production is divided up. But um, Pierce's foundry and metal company in Wexford was hugely significant at the time. It produced agricultural implements and so on. As you see there, it started to produce bicycles in 1926. But there was two other very significant foundries in Wexford 
as well. And in fact, all the, fam all the significant families were located in the various urban centres. I'll talk about Dublin in a minute, but there was a very significant foundry in Dundalk as well, and, um, and a very significant foundry in Drogheda. And if you know anything about the Drogheda foundry, you're probably going to be able to guess what photograph I'm going to put up next, which is the diving bell down in Dublin Dock. So that was produced, that, that came... That was in operation for about 100 years or so. It was used to <coughs> construct the walls of the Liffey. So it was built around 1860 by the Drogheda foundry, which is called Grendon's. And then, and then you had Shannon foundry and Limerick and so on. So these foundries turned their hands to all sorts of things. Whatever ironwork or metalwork needed to be done, they could do them. And I think this is fantastic. The remnants of those old foundries are still around Dublin in the manhole covers. So I've had my students search out the earliest dated manhole cover they can find, and some of them have found manhole covers with the date 1890 on them. So that's that's pretty significant. So if you ever if you're ever into look at manhole covers, which I do all the time, you'll know the significant ones around Dublin. So Hammond Lane was the biggest foundry in Dublin, and substantially. Say it again. John Woody and Dodson, are they? Gee, I never heard of those. You'll have to give me the name okay. afterwards and I'll see. Yeah. So uh, Hammond Lane employed, it, it employed 800 or so in 1937. It employed almost 300 in 1913, so I'm guessing it was somewhere in between. But a foundry that I, that I love, because they produced these great manhole covers, is Tonge and Taggart. Um, so that's, uh, that, those ones are still dotted all around yeah. Dublin. And... Tonge and Taggart later merged with McLaughlin's. Now, McLaughlin's was a special kind of foundry because it produced artwork, and I'll show you just some of their work on the next slide. And McLaughlin's was on Pierce Street, and I was listening to the History Show or something on radio a few months back, and it turns out, so, Horrock Pierce had half-sisters or something, his father had married before and was a widower, and he had half-sisters, and one of his half-sisters, and Pierce's came from Pierce Street, I guess, whatever it was called then, Great Brunswick Street. So one of his half-sisters married into the McLaughlin foundry. So McLaughlin and Tonjan Taggart later merged. So these are other significant foundries. But the McLaughlins, um, their work is still, is still beautiful and still to be seen around Dublin. So they were responsible for the production of the canopy outside uh, the mansion house and for the island bridge and gates on the Phoenix Park. So they, so they were known for their artwork. Um, and then, yeah, my last slide is the following then. Gosh, I've raced ahead. Uh, the oldest firm, spectacularly old, from 1488 and still in existence, Rathbone, the Rathbone Candles. So it was based on East Wall in the 1920s. I looked them up recently. They're out in somewhere, some suburb or other now. But that's incredibly old. And the oldest British manufacturing firm in existence is Cambridge University Press, believe it or not, that was publishing paint and printing <coughs> manufacturing. But after that, the, the other oldest British firm was, and it was an article out in the Financial Times last weekend, so I stumbled across it, was um, the foundry that produced Big Ben. And that date, that's from about 100 years after. Yeah, I think it's from 1570 or something like that. So 100 years after Rathbone. So 
we have amongst clearly the oldest um, manufacturing firms uh, in the world. So I'm going to I'm going to just take turn that off for a moment and just kind of summarise. Um, and then, <coughs> I, Peter, I knew you'd be here, so I knew I better look up something about the railway companies. Mm -hmm. Amazingly, two sectors are not in the sense of industrial production, and I don't understand why. And that is shipbuilding and the big railway engineering companies. So I have some information on those. I, I think they might, they, might, they might be classed as engaged primarily in repairs rather than manufacturing. But they were clearly, you know, they were clearly metal works and so on. So I'll say something brief about them, um, and then I'll just kind of summarise some, some of my findings. So the shipbuilding um, companies, there were, there were significant, reason, relatively significant um, shipbuilders still in Dublin in the 1920s. So there was a British firm, Vickers, that ran the, north, the ship, Dublin shipyards on the north side of the Liffey, that employed 250 in the 1920s, and that was engaged in building the, the Guinness ships, right? That manuals will remember from our childhood. And then there was another um, shipyard or boat works at Ringsend um, that employed, that was called Macmillan's Ring, uh, Ringsend Dockyard. That employed about 300 in the 1920s, and that was building primarily boats for the <coughs> Grand Canal. Um, and then you had huge cork dockyards that I believe employed around 2,000 in the 1920s, but I'm still kind of researching those. Um, and then finally the rail works. So you had these huge rail works, um, primarily in Dundalk and in Inchicore. And Peter, I should have rang you up because I'm sure you know much more about this than me. So the Great Northern Railway um, was, you know, the split with partition and so on, but its main um, rail yard, which was engaged in the production of um, of the trains and so on, uh, was at Dundalk, and that had a workforce of eight, 800 in 1925, so that was significant. And then you had the Great Southern um, Rail Yard in Inchicore that employed 700 in the 1920s. Like I say, a, not all of those would have been involved in manufacturing, you know, so some of those would have been involved in repair, and technically repair is counted as a service, so it doesn't appear in the sense of industrial production. And you had Dublin United Tramways, which employed a thousand in the 1920s, but again, it's difficult to know what proportion of those were, you know, staff actually on were operating the trams, and what proportion were involved in repair versus what proportion were involved in manufacturing. So there's a bit of work still to be done on that. <coughs> I am almost complete, believe it or not, able to pin religions on most of those firms. Most of the firms I've talked about here, and basically I've been at this huge database of any firm that employed a hundred or more. So it's a huge database. And I'm again with the assistance of my students, you know, since the 1901 and 1911 census came online, it's much easier to dig out people's religion. There's a book that I'm sure you're familiar with called The Irish Establishment, mm -hmm. published a few years ago, that worked, that, that determined the religion of the leading business people, leading civil servants, leading military and so on in the couple of decades before independence. So his work would have been an awful lot more onerous than mine because I think he did that before these, the censuses came online. Now it's easy enough to figure out who the owner is, to find out, you know, just go to the census and find out their religion. So there was a huge, you know, huge um, proportion of these firms were Protestant. I can't give you a, a breakdown as yet, you know, but within a couple of months I should be able to. Huge proportion were Protestant, 
substantial proportion were Quaker in a way out of proportion to their share of the population. And Catholics dominated in particular sectors. Now, sectarianism was obviously an issue at that time. Mostly it was, you know, pr uh, uh, Protestants getting, you know, promotions or getting better pay and conditions than Catholics and so on. But occasionally you find Catholic firms like Carroll's and Dundalk. Carroll's had a reputation for, you know, turning discrimination on its head and been, been more favorable to its Catholic workers than its Protestant workers. That's from an oral history of um, So that, that issue of religion is important. I started thinking about this, because most many of you guys will remember as well when Idi Amin kicked the Asians out of Uganda and thought, okay, kick them out and get their businesses taken over by indigenous Africans. And you know, most of the businesses collapsed because they were given to people without any experience, just like um, Mugabe in Zimbabwe as well. But at independence, you know, I'm thinking, Across the world, you do see that, that there's a tendency to try and develop a middle class of people that you see as natives to your country. So the Anglo-Irish would have been seen as non-natives, you know. And I think that must have been, that had to have been part of the protectionist strategy that Fianna Fáil adopted. But like I say, to the extent that I make an inroads on the ownership, the religion of ownership of industry in the late 1930s, you obviously see Catholics in much more, more predominant in terms of their ownership of the, the new businesses. So that's still something I'm working on. Okay, so the final couple of things I want to say then, so the nine big factories that I have, I mentioned the symmetry. Three of them foreign-owned multinationals. This is in 1929. Three of them foreign-owned multinationals. That was Ford, Players Wales, and Cross and Blackwell. Three of them non-Catholic Irish, that was uh, Guinness, Jacobs and Goodbodies, and three of them are Catholic Irish, Blarney, Woolen Mills, Irish Independent and Bolands. And the other thing, particularly interesting for me, since it's my area of research over in the real world, um, is the indigenous Irish multinationals that were, you know, that were already multinational at this time. So I mentioned Jacobs, you know, had established in Liverpool in 1914. Carroll's had established in Liverpool in 1923. Goulding's that had a factory in Florida, and it had, it had fertilizer works in France as well, and so on, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Denny, that had that big Chicago plant. O'Mara's, that was multinational all over the world. And then, finally, Guinness, to the extent it was already headquartered in London but Guinness in the 1930s established at Park Royal in London. So I was kind of quite surprised to find these six Irish firms that were already multinational in or around that era. Okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. Great. Great.